Hey, I just want to, before I even get into what I'm doing today, does that song not excite you? The truth that we aren't struggling to be free. He's done that. The chains of slavery and bondage are gone. Is that not amazing? Let me ask you a question. Is that worth shouting about? Shout about it. Give it, give it up. Thank you, Jesus. Golly, thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for saving us. Pray with me. I, I just want to I, I just stop and, and, and give you the gratitude that you so mightily deserve. I, I even think, God, as, as we enter into this, the, the significance of the passage that we're going to work with today as, as we consider these chains that we carry, and that you've broken them, the struggle that we fought, and you fixed it. God, we are amazed, humbled. Would you fill our hearts today, God? Would you move in us today, God? Would you put your spirit in us that it's not just in this moment for the next 35, 40 minutes, God, but, but, but that it is in us as we walk out the doors of this, uh, of this building and we carry this truth into a city that so desperately needs to see it exemplified and hear it proclaimed. That you have made us free. And that freedom can be had by any that would believe. God, would you give, just use us to give this call. Use us to make this proclamation and to set the example. We thank you for it. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the last week today of, of this seven-week series on the Seven miracles that John shared, the seven miraculous signs. As, as John chose the miracles that he was going to share in his gospel message, he chose them specifically to challenge us to believe, to challenge us to, to walk in a deeper faith and to have a clearer understanding of who Christ is and what he came to do. And so every week we've been working through these seven miracles asking questions. What's it tell us about Jesus? What's it tell us about the work he was doing? How, how, what do we learn? And today probably one of the most familiar miracles that he ever worked is the raising of Lazarus. And so as we go through that, we're actually going to read 46 verses today. I know last week I told you we had 41 and I was, I was like, there's just no way I can handle them. There's no way I can handle all of these. There's no way that I can bring to you everything that needs that could be said in this in this, in, in this sermon, there's no way you would get, you'd probably leave before I was finished. I'm, I'm not that interesting, and I get that, but, but I want you to hear the verses. I want you to hear the passage. It's such an amazing story, and then we're going to come back after we read through the whole thing. We're going to come back, and I'm going to highlight some points, and some of those points are maybe ones you're familiar with. Maybe they're ones you'll expect to be preached on whenever you hear this story, but I think there's going to be at least one, maybe two, that maybe you have never considered before. And so I, I think it, it, it'll be good and it'll be beneficial for us as we consider what this, what, what this miracle, what this miraculous sign reveals to us about Jesus. Let's just begin reading. We're going to be in John chapter 11, verse 1. This, the, the verses will be on the screen. Uh, if you've got your Bible, you can certainly follow along there. Uh, but here we go. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, <coughs> the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, 
is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I would stomp my foot there, but I don't think you'll hear it. That we need to pay to hear that. It doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he got up and went immediately to them. That's not what it says, though, is it? So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You ever been loved by being waiting? I mean, by being left where you're in a difficult situation? Is that how you measure love? Is that how we, we measure love? So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days. And after this, he, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light or in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus does something here. He does it over and over and over through the Gospels. As, as people ask him questions, he doesn't really answer them the way they expect to be answered. He asks another question and begins to teach out of that and, and help them see that there's another issue at hand, not just him getting up and doing what doesn't seem logical to them. But he says, or after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if, if he's just fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Sometimes we need to hear these plain words. You know, we, we don't get the symbology. We don't understand the spiritual messages that he gives us. And sometimes we need this. We're just like the dis disciples, and we need to hear Lazarus has died. And for your sake, here's another one, stomp on this one. Pay attention. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, I, I think Thomas is feeling pretty big here. He's swelling up in his chest. Let us also go that we may die with him. Not Lazarus, but Jesus. I'm so committed to Jesus that I'm going to go die with him. Have you ever felt that way about your own life? Oh, man, I'm all for Jesus. Let's go die with him. Peter, I think, felt that way once. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jer Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So here's this whole crowd now. Mary is the one that he wanted to see, this whole crowd coming towards him. 
And now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. The shortest verse in the Bible, just that trivial pursuit question. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could, could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Just Remember, just last week we studied this. was was not separated by much time. But Jesus had healed a man who was born blind. And they were witnesses to it. The Jews were witnesses to it. They'd seen it. They'd experienced it. It angered them because he did it on the Sabbath. And now they're asking questions. Couldn't this man who healed the eyes of a blind man, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Couldn't he have healed this simple sickness? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Sounds a lot like a tomb he might be laid in in just a short time. But Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by the time, by, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. There's a, whole, there's a whole thing working here that we don't necessarily see because it's not our culture. But as they prepared bodies, they wrapped them up with spices and, and all of this stuff, and they covered them up. And it wasn't so much for uh, uh, preservation as much as to keep the stink down because they didn't put them underground like we did. They're, they put a, a stone over a cave opening, a stone over some... They're not getting a good seal. It's not like an airtight seal that's keeping the water out and the smell in. Decay and, and death stinks. Have you ever smelled death? It stinks. There's already going to be a stink. He's been dead four days. There's another tradition that, that we're not really seeing here, but there was a, a, a teaching in the Jewish culture that said the spirit of a man hovered over, or spirit of a person, not just a man, but the spirit of a person hovered over them for three days after their death. And here, Lazarus is dead four days. We know his body is decaying. He is not coming back to life. Moving that stone is not going to do us any good except let us deal more intimately with this death. I don't want to smell it. They don't want to smell it. Jesus, is that really what we want to do? Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you have always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. He prays to his Father. He has this, this conversation with God the Father so that everybody else gets this. You hear me and respond. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I don't know what anybody else expected in that moment. I mean, what would you expect? Come out! I, I don't know, you know. I mean, my Western way of thinking is, I, I, how's he going to pull this off? You know, well, what do you expect to happen? Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out. 
that should sit you down if you're standing up. I mean, that's the reality of it. That dead dude, he had been dead for four days. The stink of death was on him, came hobbling out. You know how excited you were at the beginning when we were excited about the song? This is worth it. This is worth that excitement. This is not just a moment in time that is, oh, man, God, God raised somebody from the dead. God raised somebody from the dead. Wake up. Come on. Is that worth shouting about? Shout about it. Praise God he raised people from the dead. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, go, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It's an interesting thing about Jesus. You're either with him or against him. You're either going to trust him or you're going to tell on him and try to cause trouble for him. Even ignoring him and trying to deny him is not with him. Everything we do that's not believing in him is against him. But here we go. Let's, let's just deal with this. Let's, let's break it down. Obviously, I told you, we, we cannot, we do not have time to deal with everything that's here. It's impossible. There's no way. Now, when I get done with these, if you want me to keep going, you just tell me and I will. But this is, this is what I think I, I really want you to see today as we, as we consider as we consider what this tells us about Jesus, what we can learn about Jesus from this miraculous sign. First, we see the history in verses 1 through 3. It is obvious as John begins to tell this story that this family had a history with Jesus. They had experience with him. They knew him. Mary, the sister Mary, she was the one that went to Jesus and poured expensive ointment on his feet and then took her hair and wiped it off. And a very intimate moment. Mary and Martha, if you read in the other Gospels, Mary and Martha, they're the ones who Jesus was in their house. And Martha was so busy preparing and serving him, trying to get a meal ready for him, that she got upset that Mary was sitting and learning from him. And so when she goes to Jesus and she says, hey, Jesus, don't you think Mary should be helping me? He corrected her. He said, maybe you should be here where Mary's at. That's these people. They, they had a, a strong history with him. We see as, as the servant or the messenger goes to tell Jesus about Lazarus' illness, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, remember that guy Lazarus you met once? You remember him? He, he's the guy that he's got like black curly hair, kind of short and dark complected, you know, like all of us are. He didn't, he didn't say that. He said, the man who you love. There's history there. There's, there's relationship there. These people know Jesus. And in fact, if you listened along the way, you heard Mary make a proclamation of her faith. She knew so much about Jesus, she trusted him. Not only, hey, if, if, if you were here, Lazarus would still be alive, but I know even now you can ask what you will and God will do it. I believe that about you. Not even that. I believe that you are the Son of God, the Christ who is sent. For us, she believes this. There's history, there's rich history, and that history amounts to experience. How many of you have experience walking with Christ today? Come on, raise your hands. Don't be shy. I, I, I'm not going to let you be subdued today. This is too big. Raise your hands. If you have experience walking with Christ, raise them up. All right, here we go. 
That's big, it's important, it's amazing, it's, it's, it's proof of his work, his continuing work in the world, right? Do you have history with Jesus? How many of you have been loved by Jesus when he waits? You see, Jesus loves us sometimes by waiting. I stomped my foot for that one. Remember? The messenger shows up, and Jesus gets up. No. He sits still. In fact, he sat for two days. And it says that he did that because he loved them. How many of you want to be loved by Jesus when he waits? That's not, that's not typically our response. Now, in this moment, I recognize in this moment, you see I'm building a point, and you're going you're gonna to want to say, yeah, I want to wait. I want to wait. I, I want to wait for really good. Come on. Let's be, let's be honest. When you pray, what do you look for? An answer right now. Hey, God, we ain't got time to be messing around. I need you to act. I need you to do this. I need you to show up and fix my mess. I need you to, I need you to do this. I, I'm not going to make it if you don't do this. Everything's going to fall apart if you don't do this. Them sending a messenger to Jesus and saying, hey, this, this man that you love is sick is no different than you sending up a prayer in his name. And feeling like he may not be answering you. Man, that's tough. How many of you in this moment know the struggles of life? Come on, let's see it. How many of you know what it feels like to live in this world? How many of you know the struggle of life when you pray and God doesn't seem to answer? It's a common thing, right? So it's, it's not an isolated event. It's not something that never happens. It's, it's not something that just happens to the worst of us. It's something that happens to all of us. You know, we've seen, this, we've seen this principle set out over and over in the last several weeks as we've worked through these miracles. In the feeding of the, five, in the, feeding of the multitude, the 5,000 men, Jesus instigated the struggle. He says to his disciples, how are we going to feed these people? His disciples, had Jesus never said that, his disciples never would have thought about trying to come up with that much food. He is the source of that struggle. Jesus said, how are we going to feed them? And all of a sudden, they've got this problem. How are we going to feed them? That's a struggle. Wow, there's not enough food around. There's nothing we can do. Not, not just that, but in, in his walk on the water, when Jesus knew that his disciples were struggling against a storm in a trip that should have taken nine, about 90 minutes, they were struggling for seven or eight hours and weren't even really close to their destination, he didn't walk out there immediately. He let them struggle for seven or eight hours. And seven, and eight, seven or eight hours, really, in the whole scheme of things, isn't that big a deal. But when you compare it to a trip that should have taken 90 minutes, hey, where were you? It didn't take you that long to walk here, did it? Why didn't you show up when I wanted you to? In the healing of the blind man, it tells us specifically that man, that blind beggar who was born blind, it says specifically he was born for God's glory in that moment that Jesus might show up in that moment. And heal him. You mean to tell me God allowed that man to be blind so that 
some, some, some span of years later, after everybody had seen him struggle with blindness, just so Jesus could walk up and heal him? Yep, I mean to tell you that, because that's what the Bible tells you. And the reality is, is there struggles in our life that are just like those, instituted, instigated by Jesus, that we are allowed to struggle in and wait in, just like the disciples on the boat. And that maybe we've been dealing for years and years and years we've been dealing with them and not seeing God's deliverance simply because he's got a plan, a moment in time in which he plans to receive glory. Absolutely. But this, this perspective gives us just one more understanding of that. It gives us one more perspective and one more glimpse into how this works. Even when they asked for his help, he didn't get up and go immediately. Did you, did you know that Jesus is not at your beck and call like he's not at Mary and Martha's beck and call? Did you know that he rules sovereignly as a king and we're called to be his subjects? Did you know that? But how do we treat him at times? You know, the faith we say we believe is sometimes different than the faith we actually practice. But hear me, I'm not trying to be cold and crass, and I don't, that's not my intention. The reality is, is that God answers every prayer. God answers prayer in yes, no, or wait. There's not a prayer you send up that doesn't get answered. The reality is that it just may not be getting answered like you want it to be. This prayer, this, this, this appeal to Jesus' help, Mary and Martha expected him to come and heal. Come and heal. Come and make him well. We know you can do it, Jesus. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they expected the, you know, the old Benny Hinn move. Be healed. You know, I don't know what they thought was going to happen when he showed up. But they knew that Lazarus would get well, that he would be healed if Jesus did come. But he didn't answer the way they wanted, did he? He didn't answer in the time frame they wanted. He said, wait, I got something more for you. I want you to see something bigger and better. I want to, to, to demonstrate and, and, and display the beauty and glory and majesty of my Father. I want you to see it. But if I come every time you holler just exactly like you want, you'll stay in this place. You'll never grow to a place where you see just how big God is. Now this is difficult. Because so many of us think we already got it figured out and we don't need to learn anymore. But get ready. This is the way it's going to be forever and ever and ever. We won't always be dealing with the fruit of sin. But we will always be learning about the beauty and majesty of this eternally infinite God. I don't think you're going to have the answers, all the answers as soon as you pop up into heaven. I, I don't think it's all going to become clear immediately. Certainly we're going to learn. Certainly we're going to know things and have understanding as we move out from under the, 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 the weight of, of this sinful world we live in. But God is infinite and we will never be that infinite being. He's not making you gods. He's allowing you to walk in his presence and enjoy his majesty. We will forever be learning of him. Forever be experiencing more of him. My little mind can't grasp that. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But 
I believe that's what it's going to be, and I believe that's what we see here, is that he's just giving them and moving them along. You see, the reality is, is that this is that Jesus is more interested. He is, he's more interested in this, or let me say it like this, because it's going to match the PowerPoint, and it'll just sound better maybe. I don't know. Jesus is less interested in shallow love that gives us what we want immediately and is more interested in a deep love that gives us what we need, not just for the moment, but for all eternity. You see, he's not interested in leaving you where you are. Jesus didn't save you. He didn't give you this new life so that he could leave you where you're at. He saved you to move you, to sanctify you, to cleanse you, to, to wash you. Have you ever wondered why God is saving people? Romans 8 tells us. Romans 8 clearly it demonstrates it. He, 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 for those he foreknew, for, for those that are called according to his purpose, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, he is making them into the likeness of his son. He wants you to shine like Jesus. Okay, I'm going to ask you to be really honest. How many of you shine like Jesus today? Yeah, I know you're scared, but there's probably a bit of pride in some of you. Yeah, I got it figured out. And I'm not saying you don't shine at some level, but he ain't done yet. He's not done. There's so much more. And there's going to come a time when he's going to step in and he's going to call you, come out. He's going to call us into this place of eternal life in which, which the the the. the the, the, the bondage of sin and the, and, the, and the death rags fall off. And we are going to shine. We're going to shine and reflect his glory. That's what he's doing. And in this moment, I think we see it. In this miracle, I think we see it. And he's not backing down. Jesus isn't allowing us to shortcut the process. Jesus is so jealous for his Father's glory. And he is so jealous for your good that he won't let you short-circuit the process. There are going to be times you call on him and he's going to say no to you. And he's going to say submit to me. And there's going to be times you call on him and he's going to come in and he's going to meet, meet your expectation. He's going to live up to everything you thought he was. To see his glory. And there's going to be times you're going to call on him and he's going to say, wait. And you may not hear it. You may not hear him say, wait, but when you don't see him acting, when you don't see something happening, I mean, you're either not looking for the right answer or you're not seeing how he's answered or the reality is he's saying, wait. Wait. I need you to experience what you're going to experience so you can more fully understand who I am. And that's exactly what he did with these sisters. Exactly what he did before these Jews. These Jews thought he could heal sickness. These Jews thought he could heal blindness. He's about to show them that he has power over life and death. He is so jealous for his father's glory. He is just so jealous for your good that he will not short-circuit that process. And the next thing I want you to see, and the next thing I want to make sure that we understand from this passage, is that Jesus faces death so that he can provide life. You know, Thomas was all excited, and I don't know how excited he was, but he was certainly gung-ho. Let's go die with him. Let's go get this done. And he's pumped, and he's ready to go. 
But don't miss the warning that he heard from his disciples. Jesus, they were going to kill you. They were going to kill you. They wanted to stone you the last time we were there. And at some level, it appears that he runs for his life. But I'm here to tell you, based on what we see here, we recognize, we need to recognize, Jesus never once was running for his life. His whole journey from heaven to, to the cross was a pursuit to the point of death. Jesus stepped out of heaven facing death that he could provide life. We see it in a microcosm in this little passage. We see it magnified and exemplified in this passage of Lazarus. But they were acting like they were protecting him. They thought they were, they were keeping him from something dangerous. They didn't recognize that his whole journey to earth was a pursuit of death. It was a, it was a walking just headlong into the knowledge that he was going to one day die. The whole thing. I, I, I don't know why sometimes we feel like we have to protect Jesus. If we could. As if we have the power to do that. And, 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 I, and I know you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't ever feel like I have to protect Jesus. Oh, come on. We do it all the time. We're protecting Jesus when, when we don't go places where dirty people are. We're protecting Jesus when we don't associate with people we don't approve of. We're protecting Jesus when we won't proclaim his name for fear of rejection. The whole idea is that these disciples didn't want to go because they didn't want to see their Savior destroyed. How similar is that attitude to us as we walk in this world and yet the whole time have this truth and never say a word? You don't need to protect Jesus, his truth, his life, his sacrifice. It will not be undone. There is nothing that can take that away. Nothing. We don't have to walk in that fear. And this is a hard one to believe, but the truth is if you die, you're really better off anyway. If somebody rejects you because you love Jesus and you want them to love Jesus... That may be a relationship you're better off without anyway. But who, whose side are you going to stand on? Are you going to seek to reject and deny Christ just to please and approve, get the approval of people? All the time we're trying to protect Jesus. These disciples wanted to protect Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, they had seen Jesus do some amazing things. They had seen his power over and over and over and over again. They had seen Jews mad at him and him withdraw. They had seen Jews pick up stones to throw at him, and they'd seen him come out unscathed. And yet they think they have the power to protect Jesus. And if there's a need to protect Jesus, totally missing the, the, the knowledge and the insight that his whole life caught up in this image of him walking into a place that's dangerous and might be his death. We don't get that, do we? But Jesus, he faced this death so that he could provide life. If he had denied this responsibility, 
if he'd not gone where he had gone, if he had not gone and got up and, and said, you know what, despite of that, in spite of what's going to happen or what could potentially happen, in spite of that, I'm going to see my friends and I'm going to do a work in Lazarus' life. That's why he went there. He didn't, he didn't do this. I mean, he didn't, he didn't go into this dangerous situation for no reason. There was a great purpose. There was a moment that God had always planned on in which he was going to stand in front of a tomb and say, Lazarus, come out. And that dead man got up and came out. Jesus did this to provide life. And what I want you to notice, what I want you to see, is that this is the greatest and most beautiful demonstration to this point in the scriptures of his love. There's more coming. The cross is coming, and that's even bigger but there is no way for us to see and understand his love apart from this. You see, in, in, his, in his waiting, he loves us. But in his willingness to sacrifice of himself, to set himself in a place of danger, in a place where he may have to give up everything, that's a place where he is loving us. The reality is when he came into this world, he knew it. John opens his gospel with this truth. He came to his own people. This is John 1, 11. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. He knew that's what he was coming into. He knew that was what was going to happen. <laughs> but Jesus' actions really define what love is. But he is more than this, just the definition of love. He is the example of of love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life. And we ought also do the same for our brothers. That's 1 John 3:16. Husbands, hear this, husbands, this is the love that you have been called to give to your wife. Love your love your wife as Christ has loved the church. He didn't say feel good about your wife. He didn't say be happy with your wife. He didn't say, make sure your wife does everything you want her to do. He said, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Give yourself up for her. Die for her if necessary. Wives, don't be satisfied with a box of chocolates and flowers on Valentine's Day. Men, don't let your wives be satisfied with that. Love your, wife, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Single men, get ready. If you're trying to get married, practice. Start sacrificing yourself for the good of others. Giving your own will up, giving your own desires up that they might seek God. It's always in their best interest. It's always acting for their good. Single ladies, don't let a guy fool you with nice words. I can tell you what guys want, and it ain't, it ain't a long-term relationship in many cases. Look at their actions. What do they say? Do their actions line up with what their words say? The minute you hear somebody say, I love you, you should be able to look back and see how they've given themselves up for your good. I'm not denying romantic love and emotional attachments. They're real. They're significant but they last about two months when life hits. And then it sucks after that because some days you don't love emotionally anymore. 
some days those emotions really drive you to be ticked and mad and just be done. This is a call to something much deeper, much more intimate, much more real. And Jesus sets that example and gives us that definition. But you know what? It doesn't stop with the marital relationship, does it? What's 1 John tell us? What's it tell us about who we're to love like this? How we're to, how we're to be like this? Our brothers. Now, ladies, obviously, I know you don't feel like a brother. And it's okay. But you're not excluded in this. This is talking about the church. There's not a person in this room that belongs to the body of Christ that shouldn't be experiencing this at some level. If you're not, you need to ask, am I in a place where I can receive this love? And if you're, if you're a member of this church, I'm just going to say, if you're not receiving this love, you need to tell me because we need to straighten something out. This is our call as believers. If you're not a member of this body and you're in a church and you're like, man, they don't even care if I show up. Make sure that you're not just being selfish, but you better be looking and seeing if they're really striving to love one another like Christ loved them. That's the call. That's the measure. How do, how do people know we're his disciples? We love like he does. That's what he told us. It, it, it should be evident in our actions as well as our words. And here we see it. Jesus didn't just say, I love Lazarus. He makes me so happy. I love Mary and Martha. They, they make me feel good. You know, they cook me a dinner every time I'm at their house. Makes me feel so welcome. No, we see Jesus loving them when he steps up and he says, you know what, in spite of what may happen, I'm going to serve them and I'm going to show them the glory of my Father. That's love. And that's the love we're called to. In, in addition to seeing this, in addition, in addition to seeing his love, in, in his action, in, in addition to him laying down his life or, or being willing to sacrifice his life to provide our life. Here's one that I had never seen before. And if you have, don't, don't think I'm stupid. I mean, I've studied this passage before. Now, you can think I'm stupid, but just don't tell me that because it'll hurt my feelings. <laughs> I had never, I mean, I've studied this passage. I've preached this passage before. I've studied, I've read commentaries, I've listened to other preachers, I've heard it. And as I studied this, this, this passage this time, I came across something that I had never seen. Jesus arrives in Bethany. He has his exchange with Mary and Martha. You know, in that moment with Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's telling them, in, in a sense, what's about to happen Ish, they don't, she doesn't really get it. She doesn't really understand it. She doesn't comprehend. Certainly she proclaims her faith. Then he has this exchange with Mary. Or, and, and, and at some level, both of them come to Jesus. Jesus, if you had been here, if you just showed up, Lazarus would be okay. Now, I want you to think about what they thought. When their servant left and came back and Jesus wasn't with them, what do you think these emotional women, I'm not trying to make fun, but come on, let's be real. These emotional women, what do you think was going on in their minds? How many questions do you think that that, that that messenger got when he showed up without Jesus? Did you find him? What did he say? Where's he at? Oh, you, need to go, you, you better get back on the road and tell him again. He, he doesn't understand. It, it's funny because it, I get off a phone call with one of my sons, and I talk, and I have a conversation. I get off, and Amy's like, what do you say? What's this? What's that? And what's all these details? I'm like, I don't know. You better call me because I don't know. 
but they are, they are fraught with emotion, you know. They're, they're fighting this death of their brother. The truth is the guy, the servant probably shows up and Lazarus is probably already dead. And so it's not like Jesus would have got there before he died anyway. But what's it say to you when he doesn't show up when you call him? Crisis of faith, you better believe it. And then he does show up. If you had just been here. Well, maybe they're not totally angry. Maybe they're not totally upset. They see the man that they love and that they trust in. And, and so they're, certainly they're not just swole up angry and just wanting to beat on him. But hear the blame. He's dead because you didn't get here. He's dead because you didn't come here. And in this, in this conversation, Jesus sees this weeping and mourning and sadness. And he's so, he, he, he is, it says in, in, in the English, it says that he is, he's troubled, he's greatly troubled, and he, he's, he's feeling this emotion. But what I learned this, this time as I studied through the Greek is that even some of the most literal translations don't really make that strong enough. They talk about a deep grief and an anger. As Jesus stands there and he looks at these mourning people, these people weeping and just going on about Lazarus' death, and then at some level blaming him because Lazarus died, and, and, and the reality of the, the fruits of sin resting all over these people, the distraughtness, the despair, the death, the pain, the suffering. And Jesus looks at it and he is grieved deeply in his spirit, and he is so saddened by it. And he's angry. That's not a thing we like to apply to Jesus too much, is it? And I think that's why most of the translations kind of pull back from that word. Because without some exp explanation, it might go misunderstood. But most, I'd say 90% of the commentaries that I read, I, I, I'm serious, I can't tell you why I didn't see this before. It's in 90% of the commentaries I study from. Probably... Probably 70% of the people I listened to sermons from on this brought this out. And I was shocked by it. He's weeping not because Lazarus died. He's not mourning Lazarus' death. He's not, he's not troubled because they're, they're simply hurting. He's looking at what sin has done to his creation. And he's reacting just like his father who was angry and grieved. And we see it most clearly, I think, in a passage all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. God had looked at his creation and their thoughts, even their thoughts, were evil all the time. And he says in Genesis 6, 6, or he doesn't say, but it shows us in Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's tough to hear. It's hard to hear that it grieves him that we're created. And, and you know where we see his wrath? Genesis 6 is where he floods the earth. It's the story of Noah. It's not a pretty story that we should be painting on our kids' walls. Every living person 
except for one man, his wife, and his sons and their, da- and their wives. Every other living person was killed. And he was completely just to do it. He had every right to do it. He was angry and he was grieved. And here Jesus is standing in this place where he is seeing the fruits of sin on his creation. And he is angry and he is grieved. What does he do? He didn't look at them and say, I'm done. He didn't smite them. He didn't turn his back on them. But much like his father, in that moment of anger and grief, he acted in grace. Certainly it doesn't sound like grace when a flood comes on the earth and kills all the animals on the land and all the people that were were there. Certainly that doesn't sound like grace, but you know what? His grace was demonstrated in this, that he didn't kill us all. Life kept going. That's grace. That's big grace. You know who deserves that? Not us. But he didn't stop. He had a plan, and he kept working that plan. And here Jesus is in that place, just like his father. And just like Noah was God's answer in that moment in the flood that would provide life, Jesus in this moment begins to demonstrate how he is going to provide life by facing death and allowing death to, or, or life to come from death. Whoever believes, he, he, he may die, but he's going to live again. Whoever believes, though he dies, he will live again. Jesus demonstrates this this love, this great grace, this act of grace by, by providing life, by bringing us life, by showing us that there's more. And, and, and hear me, I, I know that it's easy to think that God should be angry at, at really evil, sinful people. Uh, certainly, we all agree that, that pedophiles and rapists should serve and, and feel the punishment and weight of their sin. Send them to jail. Murderers, we have capital punishment. Kill them. They deserve it. Not all of you may feel that way, but a lot of people in our culture do. They're all about it. You know, I mean, governments that are cruel to their people, we're the police of the world. We go and fix it because it's injustice. We can't stand injustice. We can't stand evil people doing evil things. God has a right to be angry at them, right? God has a right to be angry at the guy who who drives drunk and kills a family. God has a right to be angry at the guy who walks into a movie theater and shoots a bunch of people. God has a right to be angry at this guy that walks into a school and kills a bunch of children. Oh, God should be angry at them. I mean, would we want to worship a God who wasn't angry at that? Would we want to follow a God that was so inconsistent with his stance on righteousness and justice that he let things like that go? Would that be the God you want to worship? Here's the difficulty. These people Jesus was looking at, they weren't the worst of us. They weren't the most evil. They were people suffering. They were mourning a death. And the reality is you may not be the most evil person in the world by our standards, 
but to really bring it home and to really be consistent, the reality is all have fallen short of the glory of God, and we need this grace. We desperately need him to act in our good, in an unmerited way. We cannot deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't make up for it. There's nothing we can do. But in this moment with Lazarus, his sisters, these mourning Jews, Jesus stands up and he demonstrates this beautiful and wonderful grace. Because in the moment where he sees the curse of sin, he steps forward to provide life. What a beautiful and amazing story. This week, if you're in our community groups, we're dealing with 50 reasons. We're working through the book, 50 reasons that Jesus came to die. And I'm just going to read you a portion of chapter 1 because it deals with this very, this very perspective. And, and just the reality is John Piper's better than I am, and I get that. It's okay. But he says this. He says, since God is just, he does not sweep these crimes under the rug of the universe. Talking about sins. He feels a holy wrath against them. They deserve to be punished, and he has made this clear. For the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. The soul who sins shall die. That's Ezekiel 18.4. There is a holy curse hanging over all sin. Not to punish would be unjust. The demeaning of God would be endorsed. We would shrink God. We would demean him. We would belittle this God if we thought that in some way he should pass over sin. Therefore, God says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, Galatians 3.10. But the love of God does not rest with the curse that hangs over all sinful humanity. He is not content to show wrath, no matter how holy it is. Praise God for this truth. This is, this is that moment that we were waiting for, that we were getting all ramped up for at the beginning, because God is not content to just show wrath. He wants something more. He wants you to see him. He wants you to walk in relationship with him. Therefore, God sends his own son to absorb his wrath and bear the curse for all who trust him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13. This is the meaning of the word propitiation in the text quoted above, Romans 3.25. It refers to the removal of God's wrath by providing a substitute. The substitute is provided by God himself, and that's Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Where we all deserve death, where we all deserve to be Lazarus in a grave, he stands before us and says, come out. Step into life. Shirk off the weight of sin and shame. Put down your chains of struggle and suffering. Come out into this life. Come out. And if you're sitting in this room today, if you're sitting here and you are trusting in Christ, this is his promise to you. This is his, his gift to you. This is his grace on you. And I don't know about you, but I think that's worth shouting over. Praise God. Say it with me. Praise God that he saved me. Praise God for his grace. Praise him, praise him, praise him. It is worth celebrating. It is worth being excited over. It's worth getting up and shouting in the streets at the, at the, at the risk of looking like a fool. It's, it's worth getting up and living this life in front of your friends at the risk of being rejected. It's worth getting up and living this life in a city that so desperately needs to see not just another religious act, but an act filled with grace, marked and fulfilled 
full of God's love. That's what we need. That's what, that's what we needed. That's what others need. And this is what we see happening all the way through Lazarus' resurrection. And certainly, we could, we could go further. We could talk about more. But I want to just, I, w- I want to stop here. And I want you to deal with this truth. And I want you to be excited about this truth. That instead of wrath, you receive grace. Instead of condemnation, you and I have received love. And maybe he doesn't always act the way we want him to. Maybe he doesn't always respond immediately when we call him. Maybe he doesn't always give us what we want. But know this, he will give you what you need. He is working for your good. He is making you into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. He's standing at a tomb calling you out that that the clothes of sin and death will be taken off. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. You're so gracious and so amazed by all of this. But we can stand in your presence because of what you've done. We can stand in your presence because you've uh, the, the, because your son has stood between you and us and had taken our wrath and just, and, and just allowed himself to carry that burden. We can know you, God, because of this. God, God I pray that, that you would just, in this moment, intimately meet with each of us. God, show us. Are we trusting in your son, Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in him for life? Are we trusting in him for for the for for the the gift of salvation, are we trusting in Him that through Him it's it's, it's our way to know You? And it's only through Him. God, would You show us the places that we cling to, the idols that we worship, the things that we think will do it for us, that'll make us happy, that'll give us that moment of satisfaction? Help us to turn from Him and trust Christ. God, would You fill us up with Your presence and Your knowledge, the the knowledge that. Here we are on a foundation that's solid and unshakable because it's built by your love and grace through your son, Jesus Christ. Would, would you give us this, this desire, God, this, this, this feeling, this excitement, this, 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 this knowledge of beauty that all of our sinful desires would, 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 would dull in comparison Would you allow us to just stand and worship? Not because it's that time in the service, God, but because it's that time in our life to just stand and be worshipers. Not just for the next 15 minutes, but for the next next however long you got us here. For the next however long eternity lasts, you know, how, how long we get to be in your presence. Would you allow us to be that, God? Would you allow us to do that? Would you give us strength for it? God, would you help us to see that maybe the struggles we face today are not unanswered? That they're not, that it's not that you don't care about them or that you're not concerned. But maybe you just, maybe you got something better. And you want to grow us up in our faith and give us a greater experience that we might know more of your glory. God, help us to hang on. Help us to persevere. Help us to endure. Father, we love you. We are grateful. Please hear, we are grateful, God. And we, we just in awe. And Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. 
asking for the power of your spirit to fill us and move us. 